Asia-Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 10th, 9th, 8th? It's the, it's the 9th of October. It's the 9th of October. Uh, you are listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents and I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow and um, welcome and uh, we'll have to do things um, quickly, Giselle. I think we've... Uh, my fault, I uh, like that uh, music so much. Anyway, my name is Pierre Morrow and um, it was actually uh, Burundian drummers uh, and their song was Australia. So I thought it was very interesting, but we did go over time. But thanks to Annie for so that you breakfast as well. Chop, so. chop. Let's go. News from around the region. And who's bringing you Asia Pacific Currents on your favourite Australia, community? Asia Worker Links. You can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter. We're in the second part of the show. We're going to be speaking with Debbie Stoddard about the situation in Myanmar. But right now, time for news from around the region. And we're going to start in China where scores of Chinese workers have been killed in a landslide last week. On the 26th of September, a landslide ripped through the living quarters where a group of 17 construction workers were living in Ya'an, Sichuan province in southern China. While the local meteorological bureau had issued a warning the day before for heavy rains and landslide danger for the area that the construction site was located, the workers were made to keep working. So far, only two workers have been found alive. Unfortunately, the construction sector in China is a very dangerous place for workers with around 120 work-related incidents in the construction industry this year, many of them resulting in fatalities. Despite repeated government announcements and initiatives, the widespread use of temporary migrant labourers, lax enforcement of regulations and the lack of independent unions all contribute towards maintaining unsafe working conditions in the Chinese construction industry. We now go to India where it's again about uh, migrant workers. Where This week in two separate construction incidents in the southern state of Kerala, three workers were killed and two others injured when parts of the buildings they were working on collapsed. These deaths are just the tip of the iceberg that highlight the precarious situation that many of India's um, 450 million internal migrant workers face every day. The majority of these workers are employed in the construction, manufacturing and service sectors. A new study has um, has um, shown that for most of uh, migrant workers, insecure employment is the norm, with many of them not registered with authorities, so are unable to access any government social services schemes. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated these trends. Thank you, Giselle. Um, With many migrant workers losing their job or being forced to work even longer hours for less pay. 
And there have been more workers die in the shipbreaking yards in Bangladesh. On Thursday this week, a worker from a shipbreaking yard in Chattagram Sitakunda, Bangladesh, died after being hit by a flying metal object. Last month, two other workers were killed at shipbreaking yards in Chattagram, bringing the death toll for this year to at least 12 workers. An unknown higher number of workers are believed to have sustained injuries during this period. As previous research has shown, around 70% of the world's ships end up in the shipbreaking yards in South Asia. Tens of thousands of workers involved in this industry face dangerous and precarious working conditions with very little training, safety equipment or medical services, often receiving poverty wages. Unsurprisingly, organising attempts and independent unions are heavily repressed. The next one we go to Japan, um, where the radiation gen- danger uh, that caused um, co- that was caused by the fire and explosion at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in March 2011, following the earthquake and tsunami, continues to hinder the ongoing cleanup operations. Just recently, TEPCO, the operators of the nuclear plant, had to acknowledge that they had neglected to investigate the cause of faulty exhaust filters, which are used. Um, to remove uh, selected radioactive isotopes in the water and so prevent radioactive pollution from entering the groundwater and the sea. In addition, the whole plant's decommissioning process has now been put into question after lethal radiation levels equivalent to those of melted nuclear fuel were detected near one of the lids covering one of the reactors. The radiation levels were much higher than anticipated and doubts uh, uh, remain how these concrete lids uh, lids that weigh around 150 tonnes can be safely removed, dismantled and um, made safe. And Indonesia is drowning in discarded PPE. According to a recent report by the United Nations Environment Program, the rate of medical waste disposal due to the COVID-19 pandemic has risen by 500% in Jakarta. Um, oh, sorry, in Jakarta, Harboy, Manila, Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur, so a number of um, Southeast Asian cities. Investigations in Indonesia have now revealed that only 4% of Indonesia's 3,000 hospitals have a licence to operate an incinerator, the recommended disposal method for all medical waste. The main reason is that it is far cheaper for hospitals and clinics to dump their waste than pay regulated disposal businesses to remove it, especially as enforcement of the rules is practically non-existent. The medical waste that's dumped in normal landfills then becomes a possible hazard for the workers there, as well as any downstream contaminations. Worryingly, there's a thriving black market in recycling used medical waste, such as IV drip bags and lines, which then end up being sold back to hospitals. Quite extraordinary. It is, it is. Um, we now go to Saudi Arabia, um, and again, it's a, art, it's a news item about migrant workers. While a recent release report has shown that um, non-Saudi workers' numbers declined by 9% in the last year in Saudi Arabia, a court decision has further restricted the rights of these migrant workers. As reported pre- uh, previously, Saudi Arabia enforces uh, labour regulations known as the kafala system, which ties uh, migrant workers to their employers m- by making them responsible for the migrant workers' visa and legal status in the country. 
Now, the Saudi court this week reinforced this exploitative system by fining an employer over $1,000 US and sentencing him to one month jail for the crime of allowing the worker to gain other employment opportunities. The, the judge further clarified that this sentence would have been um, much higher if it had not been a first offence and more than one worker had been involved. And our last story goes is acknowledging Filipino journalist and activist Maria Reza, who has won the Nobel Peace Prize. Maria Reza, a journalist and CEO of independent news outlet Rapla and a fierce critic of President Duterte's murderous government, uh, was she was also interviewed on Asia Pacific Currents in February 2019 and in June 2020. We'd like to extend our congratulations to Maria Reza. Who has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Correct, yes. I think that's the end of the news item. We'll just go for a quick uh, community announcement and then we'll be back with the interview with Debbie Stoddard. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio, wherever you are in the world. And it's just on 10 past 9 o'clock. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3CR.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. It is 12 minutes past 9 o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. I had the good fortune of interviewing Debbie Stoddard yesterday about the situation, the the catastrophic situation in Myanmar. Uh, She starts here by introducing herself. This is Debbie Stothard, founder and coordinator of ASEAN Burma, which is also known as the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. I became an activist in the Burma movement uh, in 1988 when I was a student activist in Sydney and continued my association, my support for the movement since then. Um, I'm originally a Malaysian and um, uh, we started ASEAN Burma 25 years ago, in October 1996, in Bangkok, as a way of connecting the um, democracy movement in Burma with diverse democracy and human rights movements in Southeast Asia. Um, At this time, we do our work through advocacy, production of advocacy tools. At the moment, we are producing a monthly cool watch that covers um, develop that summarizes developments in Burma since the coup, as well as other um, briefing materials that can be used for advocacy, and we also deliver a quite a big range of capacity building initiatives, trainings, including our Women of Burma program, as well as diverse trainings covering human rights and democracy advocacy. Um, atrocity prevention and business and human rights. It has been eight months since the coup uh, and you've been um, preparing that regular bulletin. Um, In those eight months, we're still seeing violence and bloodshed on the streets of Yangon. 
but the protest movement doesn't really stand a chance against Myanmar's military, I think, anyway. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about whether there are any opposition forces and the, the size and scale of them? Some people are describing the situation as a civil war. Would you agree? Are there two equally sized militaries involved? Um, Good question. Uh, What we have seen in the first eight months since the coup is uh, that there were 4,867 attacks that either targeted civilians or armed clashes that failed to protect civilians in different parts of the country. And that represents a 574% increase in these types of uh, incidents on the same period last year. So, and looking at where these incidents happen, where civilians were hurt or even targeted with um, military violence is is quite shocking because it's gone from uh, more remote ethnic areas in the border in in different parts of uh, Burma to basically military and attacks and armed clashes across the country. It doesn't matter whether you're in a village or in a city. Basically, the violence is taking place everywhere. And what's happened since then is that I think the realization that there's armed conflict every in every part of the country and in places like in, in the West, which is in, in uh, Sagang region, as well as um, uh, in uh, Loikor and Damoso in Kaya State or Kareni State in the east, the military have launched airstrikes and attack helicopters on civilian, um, uh, on civilian communities and put them under siege. So, you know, in Kaya State, for example, half the population has been displaced by armed conflict, mainly military attacks. And in those places, even churches have been targeted because internally displaced people have been trying to seek shelter in churches and then those churches became a military target because there were civilians hiding in there so if you talk you want to talk about a civil war it is a civil war it's happening in every part of the country not just in yangon where the incidents of violence are a little bit more um a little bit more uh, uh well documented and well reported and uh are people fighting back? Good question. In the first wave of resistance immediately after the coup in February, we saw many young people, including women, LGBT community workers, are very diverse um, parts of the population joining together to in street uh, protests against the military. And as crackdowns became more and more harsh, as as people were actually targeted with snipers and we lost a lot of colleagues um, because they were assassinated or they were killed in custody, we we started to see that uh, folks found different ways of resisting. There was a, a quiet strike where people stayed off the streets and refused to go to work and school. They are running, what they call running strikes, where it's a flash mob protesting the military. There's still flash mobs taking place all over the country in peaceful um, resistance. But at the same time, eventually, people started to feel that the international community had not supported them. 
nonviolent resistance was not delivering results because nonviolent resistance was not backed up with comprehensive and uh, decisive action in the international community. We still have resistance trying to talk about Burma on the UN Security Council. We still have resistance at UN General Assembly and at the Human Rights Council because countries like Russia and China are protecting the junta, whereas governments like Australia seem to be uh, apathetic about what's going on. They're just not doing enough. So we saw this and, we, and that sent a message to people on the ground that they had to find ways to defend themselves. So now we've seen a spawning of the PDF, um, People's Defense Force, people who were protesting in the past, who saw their friends and relatives killed in the streets um, by the military, by grenade attacks or snipers, or even just out and out violence being beaten to death in the streets. They said, well, we are going to find our way. We have to defend our communities ourselves because nobody else is coming to our defense. And so we've seen PDFs start up in all over the country. And in September, the NUG, the National Unity Government, which represents more than 70% of elected MPs, as well as um, diverse ethnic nationality groups, officially declared war in the country. They declared a civil war. And that is basically a sign that, um, firstly, a sign that uh, wake up call for the rest of us that we've been too slow in in addressing the issue and secondly it's um, uh, an attempt by the national unity government to uh, to push all these armed forces both the new ones and the old ones the ethnic armed organizations that have uh, decades long wars with the Burmese military to follow, uh, to comply with a code of conduct that's consistent with international law. I want to just focus a little bit more on Myanmar for a moment. We've talked about the violence, but what I want to look at is the economy, because the economy has taken a major hit in the last eight months, although it wasn't particularly strong before the coup, we, that needs to be said. Uh, but currently we're seeing soaring fuel and food prices, people plummeting below the poverty line. What's the situation for ordinary Burmese people away from the conflict points? It's really difficult for anyone in Burma to, to say they're away from the conflict points because conflict is happening all the time. It might not be a conventional war in the sense of tanks rolling down the streets, but even in places like Rangoon, which is basically the equivalent of Sydney or Melbourne, um, people are being shot in the street. Um, there are uh, resistance forces uh, sabotaging and even trying to blow up uh, military companies, military economic installations. So we, we are seeing explosions, we're seeing killings, even in Rangoon. Uh, so it's very difficult to say there's no, there's a place where you can be away from the conflict. So um, that's one thing to know. The other thing to understand too is that um, the military's disproportionate violence to resistance actually has spiraled the economy 
to the point where within eight short months, the local currency, the Myanmar chart, has lost half of its has lost more than half of its value. It's at the lowest rate in its history. That's one thing to understand. The other thing too is that the military instituted um, the military junta instituted internet blackouts, extended internet blackouts and internet curfews for so many months and that it affected the banking industry and that 80% um, of all banks, including uh, banks and bank branches have shut down in the country. And people actually have to queue in Yangon, they have to queue for hours to try and get access to an ATM that works. So um, we're seeing a huge problem in terms of cash flow, but also uh, local people have been trying to share their resources and a lot of people, young people who tried to donate food in the street, especially to communities that were, were, were affected by military attack were themselves arrested uh, because this was done without the permission of the military junta. It, and, and let's not forget that um, Burma is in the grip of a very lethal and devastating wave of COVID. Um, and in this picture, the military has worsened the situation because they actually targeted health workers at protests, health workers providing uh, emergency care at protests. They were shot or beaten up or arrested um, because they were considered members of the civil disobedience movement. So even the, um, the previous head of the national vaccination program was hunted down, arrested, and then charged with treason, which is a capital offense, because she spoke to the national unity government. So you can already start to see doctors and, and other health workers are being targeted for arrest or even for killing people um, and they're being persecuted. And then we have this huge COVID, um, uh, devastating wave of, the, of COVID where thousands of people are dying a day. So the, when we talk about the economic impact, what we're seeing is local people trying to help themselves and help each other and still being blocked from doing that by the military's junta's heavy handedness. Um, in, in, in August, a local woman, a local activist who was actually um, distributing oxygen concentrators for free was arrested as a threat to security, as a terrorist, whereas the military then put um, uh, restrictions on factories producing oxygen not to sell canisters to local people. The military uh, took control of these factories to prevent um, oxygen from going out to the civilian population. So it, 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 with COVID and the coup, the violence of the coup, and the military worsening the impacts of the pandemic, we're actually seeing a very desperate situation. Um, and, and this is actually, and, and in, in the border areas, for example, in Karen state, in areas controlled by the Karen National Union, where activists feel safer, many activists who could no longer continue their work from the cities actually fled to current, to current areas. And because of this, those areas were also subjected to airstrikes. 
as the military sought to break the alliance between um, mainly Burman activists and their Karen hosts. So the, in Karen state, for example, um, people are being displaced by airstrikes simply because they gave shelter to um, activists from the main cities who are looking for, for safety in order to, to continue their activism. So we have this um, situation, but also we can see the push, the, the push against military and the military businesses is very strong. Um, in September alone, um, uh, civilian resistance destroyed 84 towers used by military-owned telecommunication company. Um, and, and so we can see people feel that it's all or nothing now. We've come to the stage of it's all or nothing. Resistance is the thing that you have to do. You have no other choice now if you're going to survive this military coup. Debbie, thank you so, so much for your time on the program today. Was there anything you wanted to add? We have to recognize that workers are a fundamental part of this movement and this resistance. And actually, this is partly why the, the military was particularly violent early on in the coup to workers who protested the coup, the workers who went on strike in industrial zones. Many of these workers were massacred in the streets and we still don't know the full extent of this damage. But also many of the workers who came from other parts of the country went back to their villages to join up with the resistance there, but also to find a way of, of surviving because, uh, because at least if you go back to your village, you can try and grow food to feed yourself. Now, in many of these industrial zones, in, in mainly around Yangon, um, they are still highly militarized areas where workers have to pass through military checkpoints. And I think that's why uh, workers have left their work and gone to join other, uh, other forms of resistance. And it's incredibly important that part of that solidarity that we extend means making sure these workers and the people who've left their jobs to join the resistance find ways and means of supporting themselves and their family, of feeding themselves and having access to medications. Hey, this is Nick from Pinyao. You're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Give money back to the people that give music to you. 29 minutes past 9 o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. We're in the final minutes of the show. You were listening to an interview with me and Debbie Stoddard about the situation in Myanmar and you can re-listen to that on the podcast uh, later this morning or that, any other day. That's right. And, of course, that brings uh, that's a real good segue into the fact that we've got a, a thank you to say to um, Ian Weniger from, uh, who lives in Vancouver, Canada, who actually written to us and says how much he likes our program. So thank you very much for that, Ian. Uh, obviously a regular listener to our podcast. So. And uh, rare, rare positive feedback, which is why we had to announce it on air. 
Oh, come on, come <laughs> on, Giselle. Anyway, we're really at the end of our program. You've been listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio. Stay, stay listening to 3CR. We'll be back next week at the usual time, 9 o'clock. But um, stay listening for Palestine Remembered. But that's all from me, Pierre Morrow. And me, Giselle Hanna. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.